Welcome to the A Jesus Church podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. are on week two of our fall series in 1 Thessalonians uh, that we've titled Rediscovering Church. In the wake of scandals and leadership failure, church hurt and confusion, uh, and just a general societal pushback, what is the point of church? I mean, how does it fit in amidst today's competing voices? And what does it mean for us to be the people that Jesus has called us to be? Last week, Shelby did a fantastic job of setting the stage. She, uh, she unpacked the circumstances around the context of 1 Thessalonians, explaining the backstory of how Paul and Silas found themselves in Thessalonica uh, after intense persecution. Their backs were likely still hurt after the beating that they had received. Uh, and, they, and they were there for just a few weeks. And then they were also chased out of, that, out of Thessalonica. And, and in Paul, he leaves and he's, he's curious, like, wh- what happened? What happened to this fledgling church that we started? So he takes his compatriot, Timothy, and he sends him off to say, hey, go find out how this church is doing. And Timothy goes and he comes back and he's full of joy because the church wasn't floundering. It was flourishing, not just surviving the persecution, but actually expanding. So Paul wrote the letter that we're looking at today a letter that is so helpful for us um, because in many ways, the church was wrestling with a lot of the same issues we are. Shelby poked at the ways that our city is a a modern Thessalonica, like caught between political pressures of Rome, Jesus versus Caesar, and the cultural pressures of their society, Jesus versus all of the other gods, trapped in this transactional pattern that we have with our city being formed by Portland to consume a little more, to to, to look a little prettier, to sacrifice a little bit more of our soul in the hopes of filling that gap that is inside of our chest, that hole that's longing to be filled, no matter the cost to us, no matter the cost to those around us. Portland bears a striking resemblance to Thessalonica with its addictions to to sex and money and pleasure and comfort. And and these these exclusive claims that we have as Jesus followers, they put us at odds with everyone, just like Thessalonica. But as Shelby mentioned, light shines brightest in dark places. And just like the church in Thessalonica, we have the potential of being the community, the family of faith, love, and hope that our city needs, centered on the person of Jesus and empowered by his Holy Spirit. So we're going to pick up kind of midway through where Shelby was last week. If you would stand up to your feet, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 3. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3 says this. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. 
You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering and the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Let's pray. Wow, Lord, what an amazing statement about this community. Thank you, Lord, for the example that we see in this church. Thank you for models worth imitating. Lord, we thank you for the Thessalonians and their faithfulness, Jesus, to you. And Lord, right now, we pray that you would open up our own hearts, open up our own minds. We want to learn from you this morning. So would you be our great teacher, our great rabbi, and open up our own hearts so that we could follow you, Jesus, as they followed, that we could even follow the Thessalonians and you, Jesus, to pursue the things that they pursued in our day, in our city, for the sake of your name, Jesus. We love you. This is all about you. And so we pray that you would be honored in your name. Amen. Amen. You can grab a seat. I'm not sure what it was about those early gospel messages that Paul preached to the Thessalonians. He writes that the good news it, it, of Jesus, it came with more than just words. They carried power. That original word, word is dunamis. It's like, it's like where we get the idea of dynamite. They, they were filled with the Holy Spirit's activating presence. And there was a deep conviction. And somehow this inspired like radical transformation. It was like the gospel plus the Holy Spirit's presence plus this deep conviction and, and something else. There was something more. We know from Acts 17 that Paul and Silas, they spent several weeks with the Thessalonians. And so likely it had something to do with shared life. The apostles, they lived their lives in a very different way than the culture around them. And, and for some reason, this sent the church, the local church, into a direction that was incredible. It was, it was potent, amazing, almost unexplainable in the face of severe suffering in the face of severe persecution. Only a short time later, Timothy would report that the church at Thessalonica had become like a workhorse for the gospel of Jesus. Their transformation and gospel message, it had moved throughout their city, throughout their greater community of Macedonia and Achaia, and then even beyond. According to Paul, their faith in God had become known everywhere. What, what a crazy statement. Verse 8. But how? how? How did this multiplication happen? What was the element that took Paul's words from the Holy Spirit's activating power and turned this Thessalonian church into a missionary movement? I think the key is found in verse 6 and the word imitation. It's like gospel plus Holy Spirit's presence plus deep conviction and imitation. Now, I know the word imitation could be a tricky one. We, 
we have uh, like imitation, the adjective that we usually use to describe something like imitation crab, which is typically not favorable, you know, oft, or maybe like an imitation Rolex. You know, it's, it's like a weaker copy or a lesser copy of the original. But we also have imitation, the noun, and in this case, the verb, which, which refers more to the idea or act of mimicking, of duplicating of becoming like someone or something else. And this, of course, can be good or bad, depending upon the situation. In this last couple of weeks, I've had the opportunity to catch up with uh, two, our two middle kids who are currently at school at Moody Bible College in, in Chicago. And they're both studying to be pastors, and they're both struggling to find that balance between like caring for the people in their lives, caring for themselves, and still trying to pass. You know what I'm saying? Any college students out there, get an amen. Yeah, it's like, it's like oh, how do I do all of these things, right? And, and it, was, it, was, it was actually, as I was talking to both of them in individual conversations, I was struck by like two feelings that I had. The first was like just this overwhelming sense of like pride. Like it's so amazing to listen to your kids like excited and committed to loving the people that God has put in front of them while they're trying to stay committed to kind of slugging out the school and doing the things they need to do to graduate. But I also felt, I also felt kind of convicted. They both sound so much like Brittany and I. The good stuff and the difficult stuff. You know, crammed full of, of my heart to build things and pull things together and send people's out. And Britt's heart to like, and passion for like people feeling heard and known and loved sprinkled with like heavy doses of people-pleasing, maybe a little bit of that striving, and then, of course, like a a lot of drivenness. Our kids are so much like us. In fact, in many ways, for their age, they're much better versions of us. And that, friends, that's the power of imitation, as we live lives in close proximity together, we, we learn what it means to be truly human on a more foundational level. This is why family is so important and, and it can be so powerful. Remember, family is a vehicle. And this was the element, I think, that set the Thessalonian church on fire. This is Paul's like secret weapon to expanding the church It was this idea of formation through imitation. He called the Corinthians to imitate him in 1 Corinthians 4 and to follow him in 1 Corinthians 11 as he followed Christ. He told the Philippians to to follow his example together in Philippians 3 and to put into practice the things that the Philippians had seen, Philippians 4. He said similar things to Timothy and to Titus. And this isn't the last time that we're going to see this theme of imitation popping up in Thessalonians. Imitation was central to the work of Paul because it was central to Jesus. In his final words to his disciples, just before Jesus was taken up, he gave this charge. We sometimes call it the Great Commission from Matthew 28. He said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This was the last 
earthly command of Jesus to those who were following him. Jesus says, like, being a part of my family, it means going. It means expanding. It means growing. It means bringing people into our community. But the difficulty is, the difficulty is, is we often hear words like baptizing and teaching, and then we have this like little internal monologue that goes something like this. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not baptizing. I'm not teaching. I'm off the hook. But if you look carefully at that text, those aren't the those aren't the words that are the primary call of the Great Commission. No, the primary, the central point is go and make disciples. And here's the thing about disciple making and, and that process in Jesus' day. It wasn't just an event. It was a relationship. It wasn't just like a couple hours every week. It was this life-on-life -life experience. A disciple with his rabbi. And the disciple didn't just show up once a week for, for his rabbi's teaching. No, he walked with him. He watched him. He, he got some of the rabbi's dust on him. He imitated him. And David, in Paul David Tripp's book, Instrument in the Redeemer's Hands, it's a great read if you have the time. He says this, the church is not a theological classroom. Let me say that again. The church is not a theological classroom. It's a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people place their faith in Christ, gather to know and love him better, and learn to love others as he designed. In effect, the church is the place where we get to flesh out the gospel of Jesus together as a family, where we learn how to become by watching those who have gone ahead of us, emulating the good, being challenged and changed by lives that have proven faithful to the gospel, humbling ourselves enough to say, I want my life to look a little more like your life as you follow Jesus, to be formed through imitation. And, and, and this is important, but it's not the only part of the equation. The crazy thing with the Thessalonians is that their formation through imitation led to multiplication. And I use those three words so that you will not forget them. Formation, imitation, multiplication. When people started noticing Jesus in the lives of the Thessalonians, it led to curiosity, which followed more imitation. And then the gospel, it just started spiraling and going everywhere through people's lives. First Thessalonians 1, 5, kind of halfway through, it says this, you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering and the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Notice the, pro the progression there. Paul and Silas, they lived the gospel out loud, right, in their community to this Thessalonian people. And they catch it. They catch the DNA. And then, then they become imitators of them, of Paul and Silas, and of Jesus and as they do, suddenly they themselves become models. 
people worth imitating. And so others who, who believe, they start watching the Thessalonians saying like, I want my life to look like your life. They start following them as they follow Jesus. This is discipleship. This is the discipleship model of the New Testament. Formation through imitation that leads to multiplication. Because in the end, you can argue with a set of facts. You can debate an interpretation of history. You can even deny the existence of God. But it is very, very difficult to argue with a life transformed by the gospel. It's very difficult to argue with the power of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of freedom that's moving in the life of a person who's slowly becoming more and more like Jesus. It's very difficult to, to argue with a life transformed. And all of this begs the question, look, so, so what was it that the Thessalonians lived? Like, what was it that, that they saw in Paul and Silas that then translated into their own story? What was the message that got out? Well, Paul describes three things that he observed, three distinctives that actually Shelby teed up last week that I'd like to dive into just a little bit deeper. First, their work was produced by faith. The word for faith in the original language, it carries with it the idea of like, faithfulness and reliability. So, so when our work is produced by faith, it points at the reliability or faithfulness of the person or thing that we're trusting in. It points at its reliability. So then when you combine that thinking with, with Hebrews, Hebrews 11, it says that, that faith is an assurance in what we do not see. Suddenly, our work in Jesus, it has something unexplainable to it. There's something going on that, that you can't quite see but is remarkable, that shows faithfulness. Is that, you guys tracking with me? Does that make sense? Maybe a quick analogy will help with this. I need a volunteer. Japheth, you already volunteered. Thanks, man. Come on up. Everybody welcome Japheth up. <clears throat> okay, so Japheth, here's what I want you to do. This is a very visible and very sturdy stool, and I would like you to stand on it, please. I promise. I already tried. It was very stable. Are you okay? Yep. Not going to fall over? Yeah, good. Awesome. Okay. So, so we see Japheth standing there up on the stool. It's clear to our eyes that we see the stool below him. It's stable. It is supporting him. But I want you guys to use your imaginations for just a moment. Imagine with me, if you would, if that chair was invisible. Just, just imagine what it would look like if the chair was invisible, if you could see him literally standing in midair, what would that make you think? I mean, you probably ask the question, how are they doing that? Is there a wire from the ceiling? What's going on? How is he supported in midair like this? That, that's impossible. How is he doing it? The Thessalonians' work, it pointed at the reliability, the faithfulness of the invisible God they served. Their lives had an unexplainable stability amidst the suffering, amidst their day-to-day -day existence. It, 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 something in them, it pointed to divine help. The result was that people were left wondering, like, how are they doing that? How are they doing that? You guys tracking with me now? Yeah. 
Yeah? Okay, let's give Japheth a round of applause. Thanks, man. Thanks, buddy. Now, I want us to consider that for a moment. Think about, does my life show evidence of the faithful, reliable presence of God? Do people in our workplaces and schools, do they look at us standing amidst the difficulty, standing amidst the challenges with nothing holding us up except for this invisible hand of, of a loving father and his family? And does it make them wonder? Like, what's going on there? How are they doing that? First Thessalonians 8 Starts, it says, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Kai, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Their lives were so dramatically based on the support of God that people are like, what is going on? Do people wonder? Do they look at our lives? Do they wonder? This was the evidence and work of the Thessalonian faith in Jesus. Lives that pointed at the faithful reliability of an invisible, loving father. And when the Thessalonians were asked, like, how is that possible? Their answer was simple. His name is Jesus. But there's more. Second, their labor was prompted by love. Now, the notion of love in our day and age, it carries all sorts of complexities. And we're going to talk more about that in the weeks ahead, but I want, it, I want to keep today more focused. Jesus tells us in John 15 that the greatest form of love is to lay down your life for your friends. The epicenter, the center point of biblical love is sacrifice. Not warm fuzzies, not quality time, not sex, not even chocolate. Sorry, Richard, wherever you are. It's dying to self. The Thessalonians' labor was motivated by love, love for Paul and Silas and love for each other, even their whole community. But at its center, it was their love for Jesus. It was this love that motivated and drove them, and ultimately it, it overflowed on everyone around them. There's something about wholehearted love, passionate love that fires up death to self. It's like, it's like when our hearts find something big enough to give themselves to, we begin to forget about secondary things, however important they might be. And we begin to die to ourselves. Now, of course, this can be abused, but there are times in our life when love moves us to override our own well-being, to lay down our lives. Any new parents in the room? I've seen a few of them wandering around in and out, in and out right? Is, is there any other human on the planet that you would sleep two to three hours a night for? I mean, is there anyone, even your own spouse, right? Or mother or father? You wouldn't do that for anybody. For some weird reason, we do these for these little people, right? Is there anybody on the planet that you would endure unsettleable cries through the night or being pooped on or puked on? Or, and then just like when you're right at the end of your rope and you want to go and take them back to the hospital to try to trade them in for a puppy, you, they smile at you and you're like, okay, let's do it again. Right? I'm all the parents in the room, you better be nodding because I know you know this, Right? It's like, this is the reality. There's, there's something about self-giving love. It just takes over. 
and you're willing to lay yourself down in the midst of severe suffering. The Thessalonians kept on serving. They kept on sacrifice, sacrificing because they were motivated by that kind of love. I wonder, is my labor motivated by love? I know my own heart. I know my own heart. It can be motivated by so many other things like approval or affirmation or even just getting respect from my peers. And those things, they aren't necessarily bad, but they can be a huge distraction from the real work that God is calling us to. Jesus himself, he modeled for us radical, selfless love. It was God's love for us, for the world, that led him to send his son to us in the first place. This selfless love, it's a sending kind of love. And it literally boiled up from inside of the Trinity itself and it overflowed onto humanity. God's love, it erupts in passion. Passion that none would be lost. Passion that the broken would be healed. Passion that the lost would be found. When was the last time our service for the Lord, it was just prompted by good old-fashioned passion. Unabashed love for Jesus and his family. That's, that's the real God stuff. And that's the heart that we see in the center of the Thessalonians. But, but Paul's got one more. Number three, their endurance was inspired by hope. Again, the word for endurance in the original language, it includes these ideas of like, steadfastness and perseverance. It's, it's actually a really interesting word because the root word is the same word that we often translate for like abide or remain. Think about Jesus in, in John 15 calling his disciples to abide or remain in him. The Thessalonians' ability to abide, to remain in Jesus amidst the difficult circumstances, it was sustained by keeping their hope in Jesus. And more specifically, in Jesus's kingly return. First Thessalonians 8 continues on. Uh, 1 verse 8 continues on. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. In the midst of of their suffering and persecution, which had come as a result of turning their backs on their idols, turning their backs even on Caesar, turning their backs and saying, no, we repent and we turn towards you, Jesus, towards you, God. We want what you've got. In the midst of doing that came a ton of persecution. Their lives and, and, and their bodies and their families, everything being ripped apart in the midst of that. They fought to abide in Christ. And the weapon they chose was the weapon of hope. Now, if living with faith is about having a life that points to the faithful reliability of the invisible God, living with hope is about having a life that is sustained by a confident expectation in the kingly return of Jesus. Our determination, the thing that makes us strong in the face of suffering and opposition is the face of Jesus. Him returning in triumph with healing in his wings. 
That's where our strength comes from. Our hope is in him and he, he will not disappoint. Frankly, I think this has been a season of endurance for all of us, right? The last number of years have taken their toll on humanity. They've taken their toll on the church. I mean, here, even at AJC, we've had to walk through difficult decision after difficult decision, fighting to keep on the mission that God has called us to, and it has been arduous. But one of the things that I love about this church, I love about our staff team, is this tenacious desire to move forward, to not give up, to keep fighting hope that is grounded in Jesus. That is the fuel of endurance. The Thessalonians had walked through severe suffering and they'd responded with joy and their endurance was fueled by hope. But how does this practically work? Is this just like wishful thinking? Am, am I simply putting a smile on my face? How does, how does hope actually fuel endurance? Well, one way of thinking about it uh, is like reading a really long book. Any big readers out there? You, you, you're the kind of person you're like, the bigger, the better. Like, if you can build a house out of these books, then it's the right book for me kind of thing. Yeah? Like, I, I occasionally like those kind of books too, and I'm really hoping I'm not going to lose all of your respect here in just a moment. But um, he, here's the thing. Sometimes you get one of those books, and you get like four, five, six, seven chapters in, and you bump into a character that you really like. And you, I don't know about you guys, I start thinking to myself, like, I really hope this character doesn't die. Like, I don't even know if I want to actually endure this book if this character is not going to make it to the end. So what I do is I subtly flip to the end of the book <laughs> and I start looking. <laughs> it's like, are, is their name there somewhere? Their names are, okay, we're okay. I can keep reading. I can endure I can endure, like I said, I know some of you just lost all respect for me. Come talk to me afterwards about it. That'll be great. Um, but here's the thing, friends, if the end of the story is worth enduring through, if it's, if it's worth holding us through to, then we can fight. We've got hope. And, and, and I want to let you guys in on a little secret. The end of our story is amazing. It's amazing. That's, that's worth a clap. Because Jesus, he's there waiting. And a moment will come where he comes and returns everything back to the way it's supposed to be with healing in his wings, resurrection power to heal all brokenness to deal with sin, to deal with evil, to deal with the, en the enemy. He will bring all things to right. He will make all things new. That's the end of our story. And I get it, like, like sometimes it can be cheating to look at the end, but in this case, we literally have been told the end. And it's supposed to fuel us it's supposed to give us hope. It gives us the strength so that we can be the person, the people that we need to be day by day. And practically, this means that we need to remind ourselves of the story. We need to fight for this. We need to help each other, especially when things are difficult in the middle bits. As we wrap up, there's two questions that I'd love to like 
almost like slow us down a little bit. And if you've got your books open in front of you, maybe close them up or if you do have something to write on, maybe that would be helpful. But I want to take a moment just to, to have us reflect on two questions, two questions that kind of are a little challenging. And the first one is this. What would an imitation of my life look like? Now, if you have kids, you probably don't have to look too far. But for all of us, as we reflect on that, if somebody came up to us and said, man, I, I just, I love what I see in you. I want my life to be an imitation of your life and Jesus. I want to follow you. What would be the fruit of their life as they followed you? Not, not the filtered version, like not the Instagram version that we kind of make all pretty for everyone, the real version. If they walked with you, if they saw your schedule, your calendar, your bank account, if they, if they saw your family, if they hung out with your roommates, would they see Jesus? Would they see his life lived out loud? Would they see this gospel mentality playing itself out in your day-to-day -day life? If somebody imitated you, what would the fruit of their life be? Just take a moment, think about that. It's a challenge for all of us. But the second question, it's kind of related, is what is one aspect of the Thessalonians that like, we look at them and we're like, I want to imitate that. I mean, in this list of things, is there something that, that draws you forward? Because that's the thing about disciples that make disciples that make disciples is that there is drawing forward. We are a movement. We are moving forward. There's accountability and there's, there's a sense of like, we're here for a purpose. We're here for a reason. What is the fruit of our life? What would it take for the things on the inside to match the things on the outside? for the beliefs that I have about Jesus to be materialized into my life? What are those aspects that we've seen in the Thessalonians that you're like, man, I, I want to follow the Thessalonians as they follow Christ. Thessalonian church had modeled lives that displayed the faithful, reliable presence of the invisible God. They... They modeled lives of sacrificial, wholehearted love for God that spilled out on their community. They, they modeled lives that were sustained by a confident, hope-filled expectation of the kingly return of Jesus. Is there something there on that list? As you look at it, you're like, I want that in my life. I'm gonna challenge you, just like write it down. Better yet, turn to your neighbor and tell them, this is the thing, I wanna do this as we reflect on their powerful example as a church, what might God be calling you into in this next season? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.